So as we, as we begin today's message, we will be seeing an account that involves a paralytic man. We're not told any details about how long this guy has been paralyzed. We don't know how it happened, whether he was born with it, whether it happened later in life. But we're going to observe him being carried in a bed by four of his friends everywhere he goes. And can you imagine how difficult this condition was at this time? There weren't handicap accessible ramps like we have coming on this side here. Uh, there, there wasn't really uh, you know, uh, much help for men like this. But it wasn't just the difficulties physically. If we look back and we see this culture, Jewish culture wrongly assumed for most that sin was a result, like if somebody had a, a disability, it was because their sin was worse than other people's sin. Either them or their family, uh, they, had a, they had suffered this affliction because of God's personal judgment upon them. So he was not only afflicted by paralysis, but he was also afflicted by the judgment of his fellow Jews. By the end of this account, we're going to see the tables turn. We're, we're going to see a completely different ending, and we're going to see that this man comes in paralyzed. Paralyzed in heart, paralyzed in body, and yet he walks away completely healed and forgiven. But yet the religious leaders that, that come in with their self-righteous piousness and their head, heads held high leave paralyzed in reverent fear of what had just taken place in front of their eyes. So join us as we get into this amazing account in Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. Join me as we read the word of God. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the, into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together in fellowship this morning and learn about you, to lift you up and learn about you through singing and praise, which is worship, and to lift you up and learn about you through the preached word, which is still worship, uh, to, to lift you up in fellowship with one another, which is still an act of worship. God, I pray that our lives are acts of worship to you. I pray that you are glorified through us. May you speak through me throughout this time we have together. May you open up our hearts and minds to hear your word. And God, we just thank you so much for loving us so much that you died on the cross for our sins. And you didn't just stop with giving us salvation, but you've given us your word, which tells us who you are. So help us to search it. May you search us and our hearts through it as well. And may we be changed by your word. We love you. Amen. So today we're going to see three ways that, sh that Christ shows his glory in this account. And the first one is Christ comes with power. Christ 
comes with power. Let me read, read verse 17. On one of those days as, we, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Luke doesn't tell us where Jesus is at this time, but Mark lets us know he was actually in Capernaum. And Matthew even adds to that, saying that Capernaum had become his new adopted hometown. If you remember back a few accounts ago, we saw didn't turn out so well in Nazareth. Uh, he was, uh, they tried to kill him and throw him down a hill. So obviously his hometown wasn't his best hangout spot at this point in his ministry. So he had moved his hometown to Nazareth, or to, to, from Nazareth to Capernaum. We also see that Jesus is doing what he's doing much of the time that we look at his ministry on earth, and he's namely teaching. And we've talked about how many times he's teaching in the synagogues, but this, this account's going to be like our last account, and he's not actually in the synagogue. Last time he was uh, on a fishing boat. <laughs> now we're going to see him in a home at the time. And, and this crowd has come from all over this area, Galilee, Judea, and then Jerusalem of Judea. And this crowd wasn't just any crowd. You know, I mean, obviously there are crowds and then there are crowds. And this type of crowd is special because they're a group of religious elites. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes. And, and we see, we're going to see them show up time and time again throughout the Gospel of Luke as we go through this Gospel. And just about every time it's a negative connotation. Every once in a while we get a positive. But usually it is a negative connotation. And in this account we're going to see a little bit of negativity here as well. And these, these religious leaders had heard about the miracles that Jesus is, was doing. They heard about his teaching, and they wanted to see what was going on. Obviously, they kind of saw him as a competitor, or they definitely saw him as a competitor. You know, they were the religious elites. They were the religious authorities. And here, who is this dude from Nazareth? He's not a Levite. Uh, you know, he comes from the tribe of Judah. So who does he think he is going out in our community and doing all this stuff? And so they come to check out what this, all, what this is all about. And these religious elites were known for their pious living. Uh, <coughs> the, the, the phrase teaches the law most likely, like we said before, res- refers to scribes. And most scribes were actually a subset of Pharisees that were even higher in their knowledge as well. I think it's really interesting to know that the Pharisees were not that doctrinally errant with the big things. Uh, they believed in the resurrection, the coming Messiah, God's sovereignty, and man's responsibility. But yet they also added many rules and regulations that were not only extra biblical many of which were anti-biblical. And I, I think we as a conservative evangelical church that loves the Word of God, that holds it in high authority, that sees it as an errant, we have to watch ourselves as well, that we don't do what they did, that, that we don't become start making laws where there are no laws. We need to make sure that our, not only is our doctrine correct, but that our heart is aligned with love for the Lord and love for others as well. And these leaders, sadly, as we're going to see throughout this account, They'd walled their hearts off from the Lord, and they'd walled their hearts off from other people by their legalism. And so may, may we never fall into such a trap, church. At the end of verse 17, there's an interesting phrase, if we go back uh, to that. It says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And we see here that, that we're going to see this throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, that Jesus did not do his own will. He did the will of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that Jesus is in any less deity. He's 100% God, 100% man. But he laid down his will for his Father. And we're going to see that something miraculous is going to happen uh, as we move forward uh, with that. Moving forward, the account's going to start getting a little more lively. 
as we move into 18 or 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. So Luke sets the scene that there's this huge crowd that's gathered, and we've learned that these are religious elites, so these are like that, the highest of the highs, and here comes a paralytic man with, three, with four friends. We find out in Matthew, that, or Mark, Mark 2, 3, that there's four friends carrying him on a bed. And these guys probably don't fit in with the religious elites, do they? Uh, so uh, they, they, there wasn't just like, oh, hey, let's, let's put you all in the middle of the room, and all the religious elites, all the Pharisees, the, the scribes, they're going to move out, and they're going to give you a space. You know, that's not how the religious elites did their life. No, they were glorified, and, and, and they were the ones that put themselves in the seat of honor. They weren't going to let this paralytic guy who was judged by God, according to them, and, and was unclean and shouldn't, you know, shouldn't even be allowed in there to, to have that spot. But these friends, they don't quit. i got to give them some, some, some kudos here. They get a little creative. And we, we see that, that each one of these is probably holding a, the four corners of this bed that they're carrying, and they didn't give up. They didn't tell the guy, sorry, man, just not your day. We're going to have to maybe try another time. This isn't going to be it. We're just going to head home. Not worth trying to fight this crowd, especially this crowd, because this is a different type of crowd. You know, they got a lot of power, a lot of authority. Nope, they go up on the roof. And if we look at old, uh, and, and, and this is about what we're going to maybe see here in a moment, what may be like an illustration of what it maybe looked like. If we, if we look... Um, I think we need to first off just think about these men and do the dedication to their friend first and foremost. You know, they're looking after the least of these. They're, they're, they're carrying this guy however far. You know, there wasn't, no, wasn't a nice fancy wheelchair, power chair for him to be able to get there. You know, they're carrying him on a bed all the way there, and now they're carrying him up on the roof. And you're wondering, like, well, well how do they get him up there? Well, if you look at, at first century homes, a lot of times they were one-story homes with like a patio area up on top, and so there'd be this winding staircase can you imagine trying to carry this guy up a winding staircase for four guys? Then they get to the roof, but, well, the roof has a top on it. It's a roof. Like, they wouldn't just open to where the rain would come in. So there are tiles, and then there's an underlayment as well. We, talk, we see Mark talk about they had to dig through as well. So they remove the tiles. They're, they're digging. And can you imagine what the scene was like where Jesus is teaching? So here, here are all these religious elites, and, you know, obviously they were really big about cleanliness, which kind of makes me chuckle a little bit, this whole account. Like, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall here. And, and, and you see all these guys are clean. You know, they're so big. I mean, they, they, they blasted Jesus because he didn't wash his hands once. I mean, like, they have all these ceremonial, they're wearing all this religious garb, and, you know, they, they look like they matter. And all of a sudden, dirt starts to fall on their heads. I mean, could you imagine? Like, they're, they're probably flipping out at this point, like, what is going on? Like, is, is there an earthquake? What, what's going on? And here these guys are, you know, dressed to a T. Now they're dirty and they're unclean themselves, which is just, just really ironic in, in, in itself. And then could you imagine just, just Jesus' response here and, and, and how he's watching this, this thing play out? I, I, I love it. And, the, and all of a sudden, a dude just starts coming down. Like this guy just starts coming down out of the sky into the midst of everybody. I, I can't imagine what people were thinking at this point. And, and interestingly, nobody's really seen anything yet. This is really the least of the dramatic nature of this event, but it still was pretty incredible. But as we alluded to in verse, at the end of verse 17, Christ comes with power, 
And we see in his first coming, he came with the power of the Holy Spirit, as we've already mentioned. He laid down his will for the Father. But we know when he comes again, he'll be coming with his, uh, with his power and glory and honor. It's Philippians 5, or 2, 5 through 11 says, The one who emptied his himself at his first coming will be fully worshipped and glorified at his second coming. So not only does Christ come with power, we're going to see that Christ comes with proof. Christ comes with proof. Read verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So you imagine that chaotic scene. The religious leaders now are dirty. They're, not, they're a little bit upset already. They're a little perturbed about what just happened. And they're like, Jesus, why aren't you fixing this? Like, you should tell them that you shouldn't mess up this guy's house. You know, this isn't, this isn't okay, right? But Jesus calmly watches them come down, sees the faith there, and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And this is a really startling response to those who are there. Like, wow, that's like a really, it seems really random. Like, what, what, is, what is going on here? As we said a few times, that this man is no worse of a sinner as anyone else, but he's also no less of a sinner than anyone else. He has no righteousness because he's paralyzed. That doesn't give him an extra you know, pass on life because he has this physical affliction. He also has the same spiritual affliction everyone else has, and that's sin, and that is death that is coming his way. And, and so this man was not only paralyzed in body, but he was also paralyzed in soul. And Jesus knows that this is the most urgent of the issues. As pastor and theologian John MacArthur asserts, the Lord addressed the first and more significant of the man's need of salvation. Shaken with grief and fear because of his sins, he wanted healing. But more important, Jesus knew he wanted forgiveness. Uh, the man who, was, who had carried shame and affliction by being looked down upon by the Jewish culture that he lived in because he must have been a worse sinner to be paralyzed. And he knew in his heart that he was a sinner, and so he believed that he was worse than others because of what he had done. He believed that lie, but he was bad, and he did need to believe that. We all need to believe that. We need to understand ourselves. If we're not in Christ, we are evil. We are destined for destruction. We are doomed to hell, and we need to recognize our need for a Savior. And this man recognized his need for saving. He recognized his need for healing eternally as well. And Jesus boldly and clearly pardons this broken man and gets to the heart of the issue. Your sins are forgiven. And we'd hope at this point the account would get really joyous and things would go positive and people would be like, wow, like that's amazing. That's a great response. And the Pharisees and the scribes teach your law fall on their knees. I want my sins forgiven too. I know that I'm a sinner and this dirt that's now on me from the roof just symbolizes the dirtiness that's in my heart. And I know that, but that's obviously not how this text goes. See how the religious leaders respond from such a statement. In verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees bring out the, dre the dreaded theological word starting with B, blasphemy. That is a big deal. Uh, if, if you don't understand how great of an accusation is of this, look at Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Death penalty for blasphemy. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Blasphemy was the most heinous and terrible crime in Israel. There was nothing worse that you could do than to blaspheme the name of God. And it's here that we really needed to put our 
uh, stick in the sand, our foot down, and realize that we have to pick a side here. We, we have to realize that they're right. God alone can forgive sin. No one else can. And so Jesus either speaks the truth here, he, he speaks as God made flesh. He is either 100% God, 100% man, and he's able to say that, or he's not. And some, some religions, some people, some even so-called believers try to give Jesus a head nod and say, oh yeah, he's a prophet, or he's a good man, he's a godly teacher. Yet this is incompatible with the earthly ministry of Jesus. He is either God or he is a blasphemer deserving of hell. There is no clear, or no more clear thing than that. In Exodus 20, verse 7, we see, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If Jesus is not God, then he has taken God's name in vain and invoked God, saying, I am God, I have the power to forgive sins. So we all, each one of us, may, may, must make a clear decision when it comes to Jesus. He is either God or he is a blasphemer. He is either God or he is demonic. What is your answer to that? I pray that you don't just try to give a head nod and try not to make a decision there because you have to. Jesus forces you to make a decision on that. And I, I pray that you believe and understand that Jesus Christ is Lord above all. He is God made flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Moving forward, we're going to see two more proofs that Jesus is, in fact, God, the first being that he could forgive sins. Let's see these next two proofs in action in verses 22 to 23. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. So this, this verse, the first one here especially, shows the power of Jesus. He, he perceives their thoughts. Just think about that for a moment. He perceives their thoughts. Only God can do this. 1 Corinthians 2.11 lets us know that only the spirit of man knows what is in a man's heart, uh, other than God, obviously. We see that in, in Romans 12.1 and 2, how he renews our mind. So Jesus is reading their minds. How, how amazing is that? A quick side note here, we, we know that only God can do that. Satan and his demons cannot do that. They can whisper lies to you, but many people, frankly, give Satan and his demons more power than they really have in their minds. Yes, they have studied us for centuries, and they know our weaknesses and our habits, but they cannot perceive our thoughts and know our minds. But, God, but Jesus, God made flesh, currently or certainly can read minds and perceive thoughts. And then Jesus calls it out loud. Why do you question in your hearts? Take a moment and reflect on that. Christ sees what's in our minds and what's in our hearts, and he sees what's inside of your heart and my heart. He knew that the heart of the Pharisees at this point was full of self-righteousness and envy, legalism, judgmentalism. But what's in your heart? What's in my heart? You know, what is in our heart? Are we, are we asking the Lord to search our hearts as we mentioned last week? Are we like the psalmist in Psalm 24-4? Are we encouraging uh, our, our, our God to give us a pure heart, clean hands, and a pure heart as we walk before our Savior? I pray that we are. And then Jesus asks this rhetorical question, which is easier? Which is easier? And I think that the, the paradoxical answer to this is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to tell a guy to get up and walk who's been a paralytic for however long. I mean, most of us would say, yeah, it's easier to say that. 
easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, any of us could say your sins are forgiven. But we know that's paradoxical because the, the whole forgiving of sins is the hardest thing that has ever been done. There is only one who can truly forgive sins, and that is God alone. And there's only one who has died on the cross for our sins, and that is Jesus Christ alone. Only God could do it as far as forg truly forgiving sins. We know that the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't forgive sins. It took the blood of Christ to forgive sins. It was so difficult that it took Jesus to die on the cross for us. But in a demonstration to confirm his power to forgive sins, as his next demonstration would be years late, well, a couple years later, maybe a year and a half later, we get to verses 24 and 25 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. So before getting into these three commands he's going to give to this paralyzed man, we see Jesus call himself the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is used some 83 different times in the Gospels. And almost every single time it's used, it comes out of the, the lips of Jesus Christ himself. It is his favorite nickname for himself, his favorite name for himself. We see uh, how God uses names. We look at the, the Old Testament. We see all the different ways that God demonstrated his different aspects, his different attributes to us as Yahweh and all of his other names that he had. And we see Jesus does a similar thing, and he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, this is not to be mistaken with Ezekiel, who used the Son of Man as a mortal man. This is Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This speaks of Christ being God. He is the Ancient of Days, meaning he has no beginning or end. This is his favorite because it, it talks about his authority. It talks about his, his godness. And he uses this to assert his authority to forgive sins. And now he's also going to prove it by healing this man. Getting back to our verse, we see three rapid-fire commands. <coughs> the first one is rise. Rise, which takes a miraculous healing from God. Like, right, so how do you tell somebody who's paralyzed to rise? He's wanted to rise his entire life, but he couldn't, right? I mean, everybody gets up to go do something, and he's laying there. You know, his whole life, he's, he's wanted to rise, but now here, here Jesus, he says, rise. I mean, can you imagine, you, you tell a paralyzed person, get up. You know, you can't, can't do that, like, you know. But let this be a lesson for us. God will not give a command to you that he's not equipped you to follow. God will not give a command to you that he has not equipped you to follow. Jesus tells this paralytic man to rise up because he has empowered and healed him to do so. How beautiful is that? When God gives you a command, don't be like Moses saying, I can't, I can't do this. You know, you're going to have to send somebody else. I, I can't do this. We were just talking about that in, in growth group or our Sunday school before this. But don't be like that. If he's told you to do something, he has equipped you and given you the power and authority to be able to do it. I can't have children. I can't do that. I can't, I can't get married. It's too hard. I can't, you know, take that job. Too difficult. I can't go that, to that place to serve you, Lord. That's too hard. Too dangerous. I can't move to that place. I can't serve in that way. 
he will only call you to what he has equipped you to do. So know that he, he does do that. Next, he says, pick up your bed. So the same man who has been carried around for however long by these four friends, everywhere he goes, now picks up his own bed and carries it out. Can, can you imagine the power of that demonstration? Here this guy is paralyzed, obviously paralyzed, and we have to know paralyzed people, their muscles are wasted. And if you look at somebody who hasn't used their arms and legs for years, it's just skin and bones. There's not, you know, they, they don't have any energy. And so as we remember that picture that was kind of coming down, just very frail, and obviously this miraculous healing for this guy to be able to do, get up, his muscles would have likely probably come as well. And so now all of a sudden this guy gets up, and what a powerful work, demonstration this man's life. <coughs> Whenever you see people that get saved, that go from death to life, spiritually speaking, it's a powerful demonstration as well. You can see people who are alcoholics, and all of a sudden they get saved, and things change. They're able to defeat that battle. You can see just amazing things happen in people's lives when they truly are saved and turn to God. How, how amazing is the power of God? And lastly, he tells them to go home. Interesting command, isn't it? Because he doesn't tell them to follow him. <coughs> he tells them to go home. And this shows us that Jesus has launched his, officially launched his public ministry. We see before, he would say, you know, don't go and tell people. And people they told him anyway. That kind of thing. Now, he's officially launched his public ministry. Cats out of the bag. All the religious leaders have already seen it to, be, to begin with. So now, he was to go home and proclaim the glory of God and faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And just like our last account when we saw the leper, the paralytic is immediately healed. And he leaves glorifying God. Can you imagine the overwhelming joy and peace that this guy had after this? I mean, he was, he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. Now he's able to get up. He felt the weight of the judgment of God and the judgment of others. And now he was free. He had been forgiven. And he knew this forgiveness was, was legit because he just got up and walked out. He saw the power of God there. So at this point, we've seen three proofs that Jesus is God made flesh. Number one, he forgives sins. Number two, he perceives thoughts. And number three, he heals a paralyzed man. Jesus is truly the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, Daniel seven thirteen. He is God made flesh. And finally, we see that Christ comes with praise. Christ comes with praise. Verse 26, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Christ will be praised and glorified. And one cannot be helped, or cannot help but be amazed by the power of God at work here. And this word amazement is the Greek word ecstasies, which we actually get the, the English word ecstasy from. And this word means confused, to be in a trance, to lose one's mind. It's actually a paralyzing type of amazement to where you can't even move because you're like, wow, what just happened? I don't know if you've ever been wild to a point where you couldn't even say anything. You're like, I mean, could you imagine? This would be a lot more wow than what you thought in your mind just a minute ago. Uh, so could you imagine just how much more that is? And as we discussed in the introduction, the, the paralyzed man does what? He, he rises, takes up his mat, and goes. But can you imagine the religious leader? So, so the paralyzed man comes in paralyzed, leaves free. But these Pharisees and scribes are left paralyzed with amazement and reverent fear of Jesus Christ. They have just seen 
miraculous things done in front of them. Sadly, this leaving them in this paralyzed reverence and fear doesn't lead to their salvation. And we'll see throughout this account multiple times that they refuse to submit their lives to Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. As we mentioned last week, forgiveness requires humility. Salvation requires humility. And these men were not about to lay aside their pride. They would go home, they would dust off their nice clothes, they would wash themselves well, and they would hold their heads high, knowing that they were better than that paralytic man anyway. They would not leave forgiven like the paralytic man did. And despite the opposition Christ received on earth, he did receive praise from many, albeit praise that seemed to go away in time. But as we mentioned already, he will return and he will have praise and honor and glory for all eternity. In Philippians 2, 10 through 11, you see this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. He will be forever praised. As we come to a close, I want to ask a, a difficult question. What do you see as the biggest problem on earth right now? When you think about all the issues in our culture, all the issues in our world, what do you see as the biggest problem on earth right now? Is it, is it physical concerns like cancer or sickness, disability, paralytics, cystic fibrosis, breast cancer, prostate cancer? I mean, there's all these things we could say. Or is it sin? Theologian David Garland asserts that there are so many in the world joining forces to march against things. We have breast cancer awareness marches. We have, uh, you know, ab abortion walks, which we support as well. These are all not bad things. These are noble works, and they need to be praised, and we should applaud them most definitely. But there are tons that are seeking donations and lobbying legislators to get certain things done for these big problems. However, how many are out there bringing attention to the sinful human condition that leads to eternal separation from Christ and hell? How many are marching to raise money and lob lobbying so that others may experience eternal life? I, I don't bring this up to negate any of the physical issues that people face today. We as believers are called to, to serve the least of these, those that are suffering, those that are hurting. Absolutely. And we should do so. Yet may we make our lives centered around the main thing. Even as we do those things, may we do them with evangelism in mind. May we do them with the gospel in mind. When we walk to prevent breast cancer, may we tell people about what the what real second death is and why they need not only to seek the treatment of a physician, but they need to see the great physician who can heal their hearts. They can take away their fear. That that C word won't haunt them the way it did before when they know there is a true salvation and full healing in him for all eternity. Man needs to hear the gospel, that he is a sinner who is lost and without hope, but God being rich in mercy. Hmm, I love that. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead three days later. By grace we've been saved, my friends, Ephesians 2. This is the best news that anyone could ever hear. You know, my, my mother uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer some 12, 13 years ago, been a while now. And I remember whenever the, her doctor looked at her and it had been a horrible thing. It was stage 3B. She'd been told she may only have six months to live. And, 
and she's still living now. Praise the Lord, God. God does miraculous healing. Um, and I remember when she finally got through all of the horrible treatment, you know, losing her hair, going through surgery, and had, had chemo for surgery, radiation, all that kind of stuff. She finally heard, you're in remission. Your cancer is gone. Your cancer is free. And that's, that's an amazing thing to hear. I mean, you know, at, hearing it from, from my mom, hearing it from her doctor, hearing it from family. Our, our family just had this relief. Ah, oh, it's in remission. And each time she would go for her six-month or annual appointment, and she'd have her testing, and they would say, you're what? You're cancer I mean, that, just amazing to hear those words, your cancer free. But there is a better thing to hear, that, that he, the son, can set you free and you can be free indeed. Not only cancer free, you can be sin free. Yes, you'll still struggle with the flesh, but the imputed righteousness of Christ will be given to you. He will give you, he will take your rags and give you his righteousness. How, how beautiful is that? May we tell, not only make sure that we have accepted that free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ, that we've humbled ourselves, repented of our sins, and turned from our evil ways and our, and our own ways and turned to him, believe that he is God made flesh who died on the cross some 2,000 years ago for our sins and rose from the dead three days later. But finally, may we also seek to tell of the one who can heal a paralyzed and dead heart and make it new and alive for the first time say that one more time. May we seek to tell the one who can heal a paralyzed and dead heart and make it new and alive for the first time. Cancer-free is great, but being free of the chains of sin and death is so much better. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here who has not experienced that freedom, that freedom from the bonds of sin and death and the chains that certain circle us. I pray that they, that they talk to me after the service, that we get to have some time to discuss what that truly means. If there's anyone who isn't experiencing, isn't experiencing the freedom that you offer, the victory, as we saw this paralytic, he got out and he got up and he left and he went, went praising God for what had been done to him. He was not paralyzed anymore and so often we as believers allow the things of this life to, to start to choke us and we don't move like we used to. So God, I just pray that we allow you to, to remove those obstacles in our lives that keep us from doing what you want us to do. We have been, he, he, who the sun sets free is free indeed. May we live in freedom and victory. As our first song talked about, we still go through struggles. There are still issues in our world, but we have victory in you. And we know that you are for us if we are in you. Lord God, uh, I also pray that we have a heart for you. We have a heart to share the gospel with others. May you help us not to be so bogged down by the things of our lives and the things that we go through, that we get so self-focused that we are not aware of those who are paralyzed and dead around us that need to be new and alive for the first time through the power of the gospel. Open our eyes to see the, our dead and decaying world and help us to be willing to have those everyday gospel conversations. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Pray that you help us to go throughout this week glorifying you and making much of you. We love you and praise you. Amen. Pray that all have a blessed week. Thanks for coming.